Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. An unknown author penned the following. Listen to what he wrote. I am a soldier in the army of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is my commanding officer. The Holy Bible is my code of conduct. Faith, prayer, and the Word are my weapons of warfare. I have been taught by the Holy Spirit, trained by experience, tried by adversity, tested by fire. I am enlisted for eternity. I will either retire in this army at the rapture or die in this army. But I will not get out, sell out, be talked out, or pushed out. I am faithful reliable, capable, and dependable. If my God needs me, I am there. Listen to this part. I'm a soldier. I'm not a baby. I do not need to be pampered, pumped up, picked up, or pepped up. I'm a soldier. I'm not a wimp. I'm in place, saluting my king, obeying his orders, praising his name. No one has to send me flowers, gifts, food, cards, or candy. I do not need to be cuddled, cradled, cared for, or catered to. I'm committed. I cannot have my feelings hurt bad enough to turn me around. I cannot be discouraged enough to turn me aside. I cannot lose enough to cause me to quit. When Jesus called me into this army, I had nothing. If I end up with nothing, I will still come out ahead. My God has and will continue to supply all of my needs. I am more than a conqueror because of my God. I can do all things through Christ. I have learned to be content in him. The devil cannot defeat me. People cannot disillusion me. Sickness cannot stop me. Battles cannot beat me. Money cannot buy me. Governments cannot silence me, and hell cannot handle me. I am a soldier. Even death cannot destroy me. For when my commander calls me from his battlefield, I will have the privilege of serving him forever. I am a soldier in the army, in the Lord's army. I will not give up. I will not turn around. I am a soldier marching heaven bound. Makes me think of the words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, where he wrote, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. What is that teaching us? It's teaching us that the more entangled with the world you are, the harder that the path forward is going to be for you. Because we're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to a life of dedication to Christ, ready to serve him at a moment's notice. You know, for many years, the Western church has avoided a lot of the hardship, a lot of the hardship, the great hardness of persecution. 
But if you haven't noticed, things have changed. The church of Jesus Christ itself has changed in the last year in the Western world. We've changed here. I think we've changed here for the better. But there is no more time for Christians to be lazy at their posts. There is no more time for Christians to be AWOL or deserters to their calling. There are no longer any reserves. We're all on the front lines. And it's time for you to wake up in your faith. You know, much of the church has been caught off guard. Christians have become lazy and unprepared for the spiritual battles that are ahead. But it's time to return to the boot camp of prayer in the classroom of the word and get your armor on, Christian. Return to the throne of grace to find his mercy because the king of kings is coming again. He is coming. He is coming to right the wrongs, to conquer his enemies, and to establish his kingdom. We start Revelation 19 this morning with verse 11. Let's read it. It says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So who is this? This is Jesus Christ. He is the faithful one. He is the true one. He is the one that we can depend on. And what we are looking at is one of the most graphic pictures given in the word of God about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Putting this back into the cultural context of the first century when a Roman general was victorious on a battlefield the victorious general and his legions of troops were granted the right to parade up the main street of Rome the Via Sacra mounted on a white horse the general would ride he would ride in front of his troops down that road And this is why Revelation is describing it as it is. This is how the second coming of Christ is being described because of this cultural context. And even just a quick glance of scripture shows us this remarkable contrast between the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19 and the rapture of the church. They're not the same event. They're not. At the rapture of the church, Christ meets the church in the air with no evidence in Scripture of Christ setting foot on the ground or the immediate judgment of God. But here we see Christ coming down to the earth with the specific purpose of bringing divine judgment and establishing his rule on earth. If you haven't studied the second coming of Christ, I really want to urge you to do so. It's a major, major doctrine in the word of God. The second coming of Christ is described as a major doctrine of Scripture in over 30 major passages in the Word of God deal with this second coming. See the importance in the Word of God for understanding the second coming of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 14, it's a passage I like to go to often, speaks of the second coming of Christ. Notice with me starting in verse 3. It says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move towards the north. Half of it shall move towards the south. Acts chapter 1 tells us that the Lord ascended. Where did he ascend from? He ascended back to heaven from the Mount of Olives. 
And this is where he's going to return to. But when he comes back, he's going to split that mountain right into, right in half, demonstrating what? His power and his authority. Matthew 24, again, about the second coming of Christ. We start with verse 27. It says, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then watch this. It says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with what? With what? With power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. See, the whole world... The whole world, believers and unbelievers alike, will witness the events of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The entire heavens will be lit up at the second coming of Christ. Like lightning coming from the east and flashing to the west. And the sun's going to be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven. And then what? Christ himself will return in the clouds of heaven on a white horse with power and glory and with the saints of God. And so how does John start out our text in Revelation? He just simply says, now I saw heaven opened. And the rider of this horse is called faithful and true, a clear reference to Jesus Christ. In righteousness, he judges and makes war, telling us that the judgments, that the judgments of the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon will be perfectly just. Verse 12 in your text. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called what? Word of God. His judgment of sin is described with eyes that are like a flame of fire. His piercing judgment of sin takes everything into account. He sees it all. He's God. He's sovereign. He sees everything. We try to hide our sin from him. It makes no sense. He sees it all. He sees the counsels of the heart. His penetrating eyes gaze into the center of our souls and expose our deepest thoughts and motives. His right to rule is shown here in the text that he has many crowns. Now I want you to notice in Revelation there's a subtle change in the wording. Because back in chapter 6 when Jesus opened the first seal of the scroll... There was a white horse. Do you remember from chapter 6 of Revelation? There was this white horse that leaped forth. Remember the text in Revelation 6 too. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he went out to conquering in conquering. The first rider on a white horse in Revelation 6 is who? He's a counterfeit. It's the Antichrist. He's a counterfeit. He's a fake. The first rider was given a crown, but the type of crown, the type of crown the Greek refers to there is the victor's crown, more of a wreath than anything else. But in Revelation 19, you see there's a word change. Christ has more than one crown, first of all, and that crown is not some wreath, it's a royal diadem. The golden crowns that represented something specific, sovereign authority. 
Most kings would be crowned in that day with a crown very similar to that, with one diadem. But Christ is described in the text as having how many? Many. Many. Indicating that he is what? The king of kings and the lord of lords. This image of Christ returning to earth with many crowns, it inspired Matthew Bridges in 1852 to write to him, crown him with many crowns. That's why it was written. Think of the words. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. John tells us he had a name written that no one knew except himself. It speaks of his essential glory as the eternal son, because as the scriptures tell us, no man knows the son but the father. He is indescribable, but titles are given. His name is called the Word of God. Should make you immediately think of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it should make you think of John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And now John calls Christ the title, the Word of God refers to God's revelation. John is presenting Christ as the manifestation of God's revelation and the manifestation of God himself, a title of deity, a clear title of deity. And this is the problem that I have with Christians, and I want you to hear this. I mean this from the heart. This is the problem that I have as a pastor with Christians who do not want to learn the word of God. Because to be ignorant of the scriptures is to be ignorant of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. To be ignorant of the scriptures is to be ignorant of the God who saved you. If you want to know Jesus Christ, if you want to claim to follow Christ, learn the word of God. The word of God is, is always God with us. Emmanuel. But now, the Lord Jesus Christ returning to earth in glory. What a day. What a day. What a glorious day. We have sat through chapter upon chapter of destruction and plagues and famines, and it's been horrible to look at. But what an awesome scene in the history of the earth. God coming to judge, seen in the robe, dipped with blood. One of the things I got in my strange peculiar body that I have is I don't always feel things in my arms and in my legs. And so I don't always notice when I cut myself. Angie, a lot of times will notice I cut myself before I do. And so when I see blood, I have to normally ask, is that mine or is that someone else's? Because I just don't know. Okay. I have to ask the question and we need to ask the question here in Revelation. Is this the blood of Christ on his stained robe because he has tasted death for us because he is the lamb that was slain? I don't believe it is. The blood, I believe, refers to something else. Isaiah 63 is this backdrop of Revelation 19. And notice the words of Isaiah in verses 3 and 4, and this will make a lot of sense, where the conquering king explains why his garments are sprinkled with blood. Watch what it says. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have 
trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon their blood. Notice, their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And I believe that's what John is driving at in Revelation 19. The blood-stained garments of Christ indicates he's been exercising his judgment against his enemies and his return to earth is the final victory. You know, when the Bible describes Jesus as the one wearing a robe soaked in blood, it's, it's not because he's some helpless victim. It's not because poor Jesus was a helpless victim and he suffered. It's not because it is describing some weak and helpless person that we need to pity. It is the context of one who has accomplished something awesome, very, very awesome, which is what he's doing in Revelation 19. He's judging the nations and the kingdom of Satan. It is describing in the book of Revelation someone who has done something so significant that no one else was worthy. No one else was qualified to do. He is spoken of as one who deserves the highest praise, one who deserves the highest glory, one who deserves the highest honor. But after the white horse, John saw others with Christ. Verse 14. It continues in Revelation and says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A pastor down in Southern California conveyed the account of a woman who was being held in a mental sanitarium. She'd been held there for many, many years with extreme, extreme depression. And she used to just sit there on a bench every single day, staring at the earth with no conversation at all, no response. And then one day a doctor came through who'd never seen her before. He came down the hall and he greeted her. And he said to her simply this. He just said, good morning. But she made no reply. What is your name? He asked. No answer. Well, my name is Dr. Heaven. And I'll be by to see you again tomorrow. And then he started to walk away. But she lifted her head up and said, what did you say your name was? Well, the doctor did not know the patient at all, so he didn't know how remarkable it was that she was actually saying anything. And he answered, heaven. But somehow, in her confused thinking process of that wounded mind, the woman confused the word heaven with heaven. And she began to think about that place. And as she thought about heaven, she started to think about God. She thought of God's love made known to us in Christ. And the next day, she said to every person, every single person that she met in that hospital, this is the day which the Lord hath made. And the day after that, she started quoting another scripture she knew. Yea, I walk through the valley of the shadow of evil, but I fear no evil. And within six days, she was saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And within five weeks, She'd been released from the hospital, and for the last 14 years of her life, she has been carrying out her responsibilities as a leading teacher in Southern California. 
You see, here is a woman to whom the very memory of Christ, the very focusing of her mind upon him from the scriptures that she already knew, that she already memorized, that she already had ingrained in her heart and mind, it brought order to what was disordered. It calmed the stormy thoughts of the mind, straightened out the crooked paths so that she could go out and live as she lives today. Glory to God. The word of God will not return void. Do you believe it? The word of God will not return void. That means something. It means something to me. Isaiah 55, verse 8. What does God say? He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That means our thoughts are never going to be, man's thoughts are never going to be as great as God's thoughts. And then listen down to verse 11 of Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. But it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Oh, I believe in God's word. It's the only reason I'm here this morning. I believe in God's word. I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I believe in the word of God. I believe it can accomplish exactly what he says it can accomplish. And the answer, the answer to your problems is not the thoughts or thinking of men written down in books, written down by unregenerate men and spilled out as lies to a lost and dying world that is antithetical to the creator of your soul. The answer to your problems is the mind of Christ revealed to us in his word. The very mind of Christ written down in his word. Because he is the Lord of lords who will come again to rule, to reign. So let the Lord Govern your thoughts now, Christian. Let him govern your mind now. Let him guide your life now. Believe his word now. Believe his promises. You don't have to wait for him to come back to start trusting him. You don't have to wait until that day. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Lord of life. See, I, I believe his word. I do believe his word. And I've seen it at work in my life in the present, here, now, in my life, in my family, in my church, in my own salvation, in my own walk with Christ, in my own study. I've walked that walk of faith, and I trust his word. And so when I trust his word in my life in the present, in his work in my life in the present, I trust it for the future. Because I see it working now. I believe his word when he tells me that one day I'm going to ride on a white horse and come back with him. I don't like horses, but I'll be on that one. I'm going to be part of the army from heaven. This army includes the church. Now we know from other texts that sure enough, angels are going to come. Angels are going to return with Christ. But those on the white horses, I really believe, I really believe that that's the church clothed in fine linen, white and clean, connects them with the bride of Christ back in verse 8, which we looked at last week. And this takes us back to Revelation 17, 14, where this army of God was already identified. Do you remember what it said? It said back in Revelation 17, 14, these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Sounds familiar. And what? Those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. 
Now, the wording there, very specific, very specific wording called chosen and faithful. It has a specific meaning. It is the resurrected, glorified, and rewarded saints of God who are raptured at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Now, this army, this army, unlike Christ, is not said to have weapons. We don't get weapons. No weapons. Kind of bummed. No weapons, no, no, no spears. I looked. I, I mean, I was really looking. I wanted some, some weapons here. There's nothing in this text. There's no, there's no spears. There's no swords. There's no nothing. This army takes no action. There's no action that we take. We wear no armor. Why? Because we're going to be immortal. We're going to be immune to injury at that point. The Messiah... Messiah will wage the war by himself. The day is coming when the depraved situation on earth is going to be wiped clean. Just wiped clean. And the divine judgment of God is pictured as a sharp sword that will come out of his mouth. His instrument of war will be the spoken word. He will strike the nations and, and establish his absolute rule simply with that spoken word. His word is more than sufficient now. More than sufficient now, and it will be more than sufficient on that day. So let me say this. If all you have in your mind is that blonde hair and blue-eyed Jesus that you see pictured in some churches, you have a different Jesus than the God of Scripture. You have a different Jesus than the God of Scripture. He's coming with authority. He's coming with power. The rod of iron means he's coming with a government where men will have no other choice than to conform to the righteous standards of God. There is, Christian, a holy God in heaven that is coming. There is a holy God coming. And Christian, you just may want to actually start living for him now. Trusting his word and putting off the madness of this world. It says he will... Tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now, we saw this image of the winepress of the wrath of God back in Isaiah 63. And we saw it in Revelation 14, where the text said this. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress. Do you remember this text? Up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. See, these passages in the Bible are here for a reason. They're here to tell us something that on that day, it's going to be too late to expect the mercy of God. He's offering mercy and grace now, but on that day, it's coming judgment. He will sit in judgment of all men because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I've heard some awful sermons in my day, a lot of awful sermons, based on specifically verse 16, a couple that I've walked out of, where people say this name is tattooed on the thigh of Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. Yeah, that is his title. And yes, it is written down somewhere. But I don't believe that John was actually saying anything was physically written on the thigh of Christ. It could be better translated, he has on his robe, not the word and, but even. But even. Like this. He has on his robe, even on his thigh, a name written. The idea is that this final title for Christ is on the part of the garment that covers 
his thigh. That makes a lot more sense. Same garment, robe mentioned back in verse 13. Christ is seated on a white horse, and the part of the garment that covers the thigh is the most visible. His garment covering the thigh has this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, King of Kings, that was a title that the Persian and Parthian rulers used of themselves. But there's only one name that qualifies. It is the King of Kings, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. And if we understand as Christians that we are part of this great army of God, it helps us to see our identity in Christ. It helps us to understand our position and to live it out in our condition. By the grace of God, you are part of the army of God. So start living like he is your Lord now, today. When Christ returns with the armies of heaven, the scene on earth is the final stage of the great world war with the armies of the earth battling up and down the land of Israel. And on the very day of Christ's return, Christ is going to step in and he's going to slay the armies gathered for battle. And we read in verse 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and what? Great. The pride of man is going to be revealed on this last day when the armies of the earth will be still battling for land. There's going to still be sitting there arguing about land and fighting over land. And the Lord will strike them down with a simple spoken word. It's a gruesome scene in here in the text. Millions of men and the horses they ride on will be destroyed instantly. Now John records he saw an angel standing in the sun crying out to the birds in mid-heaven to gather, to eat the dead flesh of all those men, both great and small. See, what it's telling us here in the text is that your position on earth doesn't matter. It comes down to identity, to whether or not you are a child of God by faith. And back in verse 9, it was the saints of God gathered together for that glorious scene of the marriage supper of the Lamb. But here, this is a much different feast. This is a much different feast. This supper of the great God is for the birds to eat on the corpses of the dead who gathered in battle against Christ. And again, we looked at Matthew 24, 28. It says of that day, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. It's estimated, it's estimated that as many as one million birds of prey migrate every single year between Africa down to the south and Europe and Asia Minor up to the north. And they cross the only dry land bridge that connects these continents, the land of Israel. That's where they cross. And look at the outcome here, starting in verse 19. It says, And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Look at what John sees. Look at what John sees in this text. It's an amazing thing. He sees the beast, the Antichrist, 
the satanic world ruler of the tribulation. He sees the kings of the earth gathered to do battle by this demonic deception. He sees all of their armies turning from fighting each other to attempt, key word, attempt to fight Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory will appear with the armies of heaven. Christ strikes the armies of the earth with the spoken word. And then verse 20. The beast was captured, taken, and the false prophet, the one who worked signs to deceive the people who had received the mark of the beast. Verse 20 says they will be cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Let's be careful. This is not Hades. Hades is where the dead apart from Christ go now. Hades is the temporary abode of the dead unbelievers before the resurrection when they are judged at the great white throne judgment and then cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is also not the abyss spoken of in Revelation where some of the fallen angels are being held now. The lake of fire, a burning lake. That's God's choice of words. That's the words that God chose to give us this image of what it's going to look like to be eternally separated from him. A horrible thought, a devastating thought. A lake of fire burning with brimstone or sulfur. It represents the indescribable. You see, the best we could tell from scriptures is that these two, the Antichrist and the false prophet, will be the first two to take up residence in that lake of fire. Good for them. They can have it. The lost and unsaved who die before this are cast into Hades, a place of torment, but not into the lake of fire just yet. And if you want some homework, you can read more about Hades in Luke 16. The lost who are cast into Hades until the day of Revelation 20, when death and Hades are emptied and cast into that lake of fire. Because the lake of fire is for those who have been permanently judged as not worthy of eternal life in Christ. And once the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire, the world will never see them again. They're done. They're finished. They're gone once and forever. Praise God. Satan will be in prison for a thousand years, awaiting one final rebellion in Revelation 20. And those that follow the Antichrist and the false prophet in opposing Christ, verse 21 tells us they'll be killed, they'll be put to death with the sword of Christ, the spoken word. Spoken words of Christ, they brought creation into existence. And the spoken word of Christ will end the lives of of these men. They will await their final judgment, which will come after the first 1,000 years of the reign of, of Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. Now, this is not the death of every unbeliever in the world in verse 21. Why do I say this? Because you still have Matthew 25 telling us that God will separate the sheep from the goats at the end of the tribulation. And Ezekiel 20 telling us that God will judge the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Look at what he says in verse 33, speaking to Israel in Ezekiel 20. It's very specific. It's very direct. It says, as I live, says the Lord God. You think he means it? I do. I believe him. Surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. Again, I think he means it. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face, 
Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know what? Then you'll know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 20, Israel gathered in the wilderness before God. Matthew 25, the nations of the world. Refresh your memory. It says in Matthew 25, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he'll set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now this is the total defeat of man. You know, at the height of Satan's power, when brought into conflict with the eternal power of God, death when Christ speaks their judgment and the birds of the earth will be filled with their flesh. How ridiculous this is going to look. How ridiculous the men will look with their guns and their weapons pointed at the sovereign, all-powerful creator of the universe. But that's how man is. That is how mankind is, always overestimating their own abilities, proud of their technology, and never coming to terms with their own weakness before the God of the universe. And suddenly the rebellion will be over like that. No war at all. No dragged out war at all. Just a spoken word from the one who sits on the great white horse. And he speaks a word and the war is over. He speaks another word and the false prophet and the Antichrist are forever cast into the lake of fire. In my own life, I find Revelation 19 to be very practical. I find reassurance in this text because the Bible teaches me that any loved one in Christ who has passed is at peace with Christ in glory right now. See, the Bible teaches me that they're not going to miss out on the rapture and they won't miss out on the greatest event in human history yet to come, the second coming of Jesus Christ. They won't miss out on these things. Peter Marshall former chaplain of the United States Senate. He used to tell the story of a little boy, a true story and of, a, of a little boy, an only son who had an incurable disease. And month after month, his mother had tenderly cared for this little boy, read to him, played with him, hoping to keep from that dreadful finality of the doctor's prognosis. But the little boy was sure to die. As the weeks went on, the boy began to understand that he would never be like the other boys. He'd never have the same kind of life the other boys had that he saw playing outside his window. Small as he was, he began to understand the meaning of the term death, and he knew he would die. One day his mother was reading to him the tale of King Arthur. That's some good stuff. King Arthur and his knights and the round table. Again, weapons. You see where I'm going today with this stuff. She read of Lancelot and the other knights. She read of fair maidens. And she read about the last glorious battle where so many of Arthur's knights met their death. She closed the book as her little son sat silent for an instant. Deeply, deeply stirred. Then he asked the question that was weighing on his mind and, and on his heart. And you could see it when a little one has a question on their heart and mind. And he says, Mama, Mama. What is it like to die? Mama, does it hurt? 
You can imagine the tears that came to her eyes. She knew it was a question with a deep significance. She knew it must be answered well. And she prayed. She prayed that the Lord would keep her from breaking down in front of this small child. Kenneth, she said to her son, do you remember when you were a tiny boy, how you used to play hard, so hard all day long, that when night came, you were too tired even to undress, and you'd tumble into your mother's bed, and you'd fall asleep. That was not your bed. It was not where you belonged. You'd only stay there for a little while. And then much to your surprise, you would wake up and find yourself in your own bed, in your own room. And you were there because someone had loved you and had taken care of you. Your father had come with big, strong arms and carried you away. Kenneth, she said, death is just like that. We just wake up some morning to find ourselves in another room, our room where we belong because the Lord Jesus loved us and died for us. And the boy's face looked up into hers. And he told her that he understood that there would be no more fear, only love and trust in his little tiny heart. And as he went to meet the Father in heaven, he never questioned, that is trust, he never questioned her about death again. Several weeks later, he fell asleep just as she had said. That is a fitting picture of what death is like for the believer, except I'd like to correct one point. Christ tells us in Luke 16, 22, that when we die, we are carried by the angels to our heavenly home to be with Christ. Revelation 19 teaches us first that the presence of Christ determines who stands and who falls. It will be that way during the tribulation. The 144,000 will be sealed, protected by God. And those with faith in Christ and still alive at the end of the tribulation will go on into the kingdom of Christ. Everyone else will have their life on earth end, either at the battle of Armageddon, the judgment of Ezekiel 20, or the judgment of Matthew 25. That same principle is at work today. The presence of Christ determines who stands and who falls. Hebrews 9 tells us, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Christians need to learn to move past the fear, move past the guilt, and come to a walk of faith. You see, what I'm telling you is this. At some point, your motivation for reading the Bible or even coming to church should move past that stage of guilt because you've been living like the devil all week long. And at some point, it should move past the fear of death. We shouldn't just always be so scared of death that that motivates us. It should move to a walk of faith, to a walk of trust in the scriptures. Our response today should be one of faith. Second, know this, that the name of Christ is and always will be for all eternity the final authority. Ever since the Tower of Babel, when men were looking to make a name for themselves, people have looked to replace the name of God with any authority that they can find. They've tried to replace his name with Allah, Buddha, Sigmund Freud, B.F. Skinner, you name it. Men have turned to the idols of money. They've turned to fame. They've turned to power. They've turned to possessions. They've invested their whole lives in this present world trying to stall the inevitable. The day when Christ comes to just sweep it all away. Perhaps you are one 
that needs to be reminded that the day is coming, as Paul says in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I want to ask you, what possession, what person, what position, what priority in life is challenging the place of Jesus Christ in your life? How do you see Jesus the Christ? I see him as the book of Revelation sees him, riding on a white horse, victorious over Satan, victorious over man, victorious over sin and death. His clothing dipped in blood and a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God's word will have the final victory. The rule of man on earth is coming to a sudden end, a quick end. And Satan will be bound. The Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. And all those who oppose Jesus Christ will learn the hard way that God's word is absolutely true. And the powerful words that God the Son will speak to defeat Satan come from the same God who gave us his word to live by now. And it is his word that promises us life by his grace through faith, making sure that we know with certainty that when death does come, we'll be taken home to our home in heaven, reserved in heaven for us. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.